0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Mutations can be very detrimental. They can cause a wide variety of genetic diseases. Until now, there's around 6,000 known genetic diseases, with most of them being rare. And being rare, they do not receive much investment from the pharmaceutical industry, which makes the uh, people who suffer from genetic diseases suffer alone. Nowadays, using a simple saliva test, you can get your genome sequenced and get a lot of information about your ancestry, but also your predisposition for particular diseases. Now, let's imagine a scenario where you get the bad information or frustrating news that you're predisposed to a specific disease that can cause you blindness, or you're predisposed with a mutation that can cause you blindness. Now, this can be very frustrating, But what if I told you that despite having this mutation, you can have a completely normal site? Recent studies have given us hope that many individuals do harbor gene mutations in disease-relevant genes, but despite of that, they do not show any obvious symptom or any obvious defect or phenotype. And these individuals were referred to as genetic uh, superheroes. So again, they are healthy individuals, they harbor disease-causing mutations in several genes, and nevertheless, they don't show the symptoms of the disease. So when I started my graduate studies, I was interested to understand what makes those individuals so special. Because if we got to understand what makes them so special, we can help other people who suffer from genetic diseases. My name is Mohamed el and I am a junior fellow of the Harvard Society of Fellows working at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research. And today I'm gonna to be telling you about my graduate work, which I did at the Max Planck Institute for Heart and Lung Research at uh, Bad Nauheim, Germany, at the lab of uh, Professor Didier Stenier. So, at the lab of Professor Didier Stenier, people use uh, zebrafish as a model organism to study cardiovascular development. And it's a developmental genetics lab, so people are trying to work on understanding gene function in those processes. And to do so, scientists generate mutations within those genes. And see how this affects the development of the cardiovascular system within the zebrafish embryo to infer the function of the gene in those processes. However, this is not always as simple as it sounds. Many generated mutant fish did not actually show any obvious phenotype. So the scientists would spend years trying to generate a mutant animal for a particular gene and not observe any phenotype or defect and thereby hinder our ability to understand gene function. This was also observed in a wide variety of model organisms, not just zebrafish. And this understanding of gene function is actually something very central in developing therapeutics and identifying lead drug targets. So our inability to understand gene function because of the lack of phenotype is hindering such a process. Not seeing a phenotype made us wonder, could those fish actually be also an example of genetic superheroes? Before I started in the lab, two postdocs were studying uh, an endothelial gene known as EGFL7, and this gene is implicated in blood vessel development, and they decided to generate a mutant animal for that gene. And as you can observe in the lower panel of the figure, you can appreciate that when they generated mutant animals for those zebrafish embryos, they did not display any blood vessel defects compared to wild type. And this was quite puzzling at the beginning and they wanted to understand what makes those mutants so special. So they analyzed the expression levels or the production levels of several genes across uh, those mutant zebrafish embryos and they were able to observe relative to the wild type. Over here, looking at QPCR diagrams where we're trying to understand the expression levels of particular genes relative to wild type. They found that there's an increase in production of a particular family of related genes of functioning related genes to the EGFL7 gene known as amylins in the mutants compared to the wild type. And you can appreciate that there's an increase in production of amylin-3a, amylin-3b, uh, and amylin-2a compared to the wild type. So this was quite interesting, but it was not known how is this response induced because they also showed that this response, which was termed later on as transcriptional adaptation, is what drives this functional genetic compensation and what drives why those EGFR7 mutants do not have a phenotype or do not display a phenotype. So this was the basis of my PhD. I wanted to understand how is this transcriptional adaptation response induced. And before I go into tackling how did I answer this question, I want to introduce what are related genes, what are functionally related genes that I'm referring to. So the easiest example of which to think about is paralogues. So paralogues are genes that arose from events in evolution known as genome duplication events or gene duplication events. So what happened is across the evolution, some genes underwent duplication, and thereby they had two copies of the same gene. So for example, if you think about gene X, you would have gene XA and gene XB within the same cell. And both of them initially have the exact same functions. And along the evolution, they might lose or gain new functions, but nevertheless, they would maintain a bit of functionality, even if they're expressed in different tissues. You can think of that as the genome or the cell trying to make a backup of a genetic information on a cloud. Looking at paralogues uh, was the easiest to think of because they are the most functionally related genes and that constituted how I started screening for my uh, um, question. So I started by screening a lot of zebrafish mutants that are present in the lab and looking at mutations within paralogous genes. So I wanted to ask, if I mutate gene XA, what happens to the expression levels of gene XB? And I was able often to observe that if you have a mutation in gene XA in one paralog, you get the increased production of gene XB. For example, you're looking here at this graph. In the first two bars, you're looking at wild type versus HVGFA mutant zebrafish embryos, and you can appreciate that the hgfA mutant embryos they increase the production levels of the paralog HVGFB, which is written below it. And then you can also observe in the next two bars, Alchem A mutants, they increase the production levels of the paralogue Alchem B and so on. And I was able to observe this in at least six more zebrafish models. Same findings were observed in cultured mouse cells. For example, mutant cells for frame 2 increase the expression, expression levels of the paralogue, frame 1. Act B increased the expression levels of the paralogue, Act G1. Act G1 mutants increased the expression levels of Act 2 and so on. So, how were those mutants generated? How do we analyze them? How do we generate them? So, most of those uh, mutants uh, in zebrafish, at least, they are generated by the CRISPR system, CRISPR Cas9 system. And those, uh, the, uh, like we target the CRISPR system to a particular gene, and it leads to uh, changes that can lead to what is known as a premature stop codon within an RNA. So, when you have the mutation, it will be transcribed into an RNA. And the RNA normally has a start codon and a stop codon through which the ribosome translates. And if you have a mutation that leads to a premature stop codon, this is known as a nonsense mutation. So what happens with nonsense mutations is, instead of the ribosome translating from the start, as in green, and ending at the stop, which is red over here, it will stop at the premature stop codon, which is yellow. And instead of producing a complete functional protein, it may produce a truncated protein that can be toxic to the cell. So to avoid production of toxic proteins that are toxic to the cell, or sorry, truncated proteins that are toxic to the cell, the cell has evolved a machinery that is known as the RNA surveillance machinery. You can think of it as a surveillance camera. Whenever a ribosome hits a premature stop codon, it signals to this RNA surveillance machinery and recruits RNA decay enzymes that are responsible for degrading this RNA to prevent it from producing the truncated protein. So what happens after stopping at the premature stop codon? It degrades it and leads to the production of those fragments or completely degrades RNA. And this was something that we observed in all of the mutants that we were studying. So over here, for example, you're looking at Alchem A mutants, but right now you're not looking at the paralogous gene expression levels, but rather the mutant gene expression levels. And you can appreciate that in the ALKAM-A mutants in the second bone in blue compared to wild type in red, you can appreciate that there's a decrease in the production levels or expression levels of ALKAM-A itself compared to the wild type suggesting that there's an active degradation happening in that case. And this was observed across all of the mutants that we were studying. So what made us interested in this response is that we were studying two different mutants for the same gene that behave differently in terms of inducing this gene, uh, transcriptional adaptation response. So the gene is known as Vinklin A, or referred to as VCLA, and we were able to see that one mutant, which is referred to here as mutant 1 in the second bar, increases the expression levels of its paralogue, Vinklin B, while the second mutant, mutant 2, did not increase the production levels of the paralogue, Vinklin B. And this was quite puzzling at the beginning until we came across this correlation between the upregulation levels of the paralog and the degrees of decay of the mutant gene. So in the second half of the graph, you're looking now at the expression levels of the mutant gene itself, Vinklin A itself. And you can appreciate that the mutant one, which upregulated or increased the expression level of Vinklin B, the paralog, had RNA decay. So you can appreciate that in blue compared to wild type, you appreciate that there's almost around 80% decay or decrease in expression of vinculin A, while this is missing in mutant 2 that did not increase the production levels of the paralogue vinculin B. So finding that, we thought, could it be that the process of mutant mRNA degradation is what triggers this transcriptional adaptation response? And to answer that, we asked ourselves another question. What if we generate mutant alleles or mutant animals that fail to transcribe a particular gene or our gene of interest? So in that case, we would still have a mutant because the gene is is not producing an RNA and thereby not producing the protein. But at the same time, we're also not having any RNA decay happening because we don't have an RNA being produced. So how did we do that? We did that by blocking the transcription of a particular gene. And there are multiple ways to do that, which we took, but the simplest of which is just deleting the entire gene locus. So we'd use the CRISPR-Cas9 system and kick out the gene from the genome and thereby prevent the production of an RNA. You can think of that as like a cooking book, which has multiple recipes and the recipes being the genes. So if you tear out a number of pages for a specific recipe, you can no longer produce this specific meal because you don't have the code for it. So, we call these mutants RNA less alleles because they don't produce the RNA. And we next tested whether those RNA less alleles would fail to induce this transcriptional adaptation response. And we were able to indeed observe that our hypothesis was true. So, if we generate RNA less alleles, they do not induce this transcriptional adaptation response. For example, over here, you're looking at one of the RNA-less alleles that we generated for a gene known as hvgf so we deleted the entire full uh, gene locus, so a full locus deletion for that gene, which does not produce the hvgf mRNA as you can observe in the uh, first two bars where you can see that the mutants do not have any production levels of the hvgf gene. And at the same time, those mutants did not increase the production levels of the paralog hbgf which you can observe in the second uh, uh, half of the, of the graph, unlike the mutants that displayed RNA decay. And we observed this across a lot of RNA-less mutants that we generated, and proved that um, if you generate RNA-less mutants, you do not have a transcription adaptation response to being induced. Even more interestingly, we're able to observe stronger phenotypes or stronger defects when we had mutant uh, alleles that do, uh, like those RNA-less mutant alleles. So going back to what I started my talk with about talking about those EGFL7 mutants that previous colleagues in the lab worked on, where they generated the mutant alleles that displayed RNA decay for EGFL7 and found that those mutants display RNA decay but displayed no obvious phenotype compared to wild type in terms of blood vessel development, as you can appreciate in this image. However, once I generated a full locus deletion, uh, an RNA-less mutant for that gene, I was able to observe the strong vascular defects, the strong defects in blood vessel development that were not appearing in the allele or the mutant displaying RNA decay. So suggesting that generation of RNA-less alleles can unmask hidden phenotypes and thereby allow us to better understand gene function and as I mentioned, something that is very central in thinking about therapeutics. So a summary of what I've told you so far, we have found that mutant zebrafish and mouse cell lines do increase the expression levels of related genes. And we found that there is a correlation between this induction of the transcription adaptation response and thereby genetic compensation and RNA decay. And if we're, one were to generate mutant alleles that fail to transcribe a gene or fail to produce an RNA of a gene and thereby not have decay, those alleles do not have a transcription adaptation response and display stronger phenotypes than alleles that display decay, allowing us to better understand gene function. So at this stage, we're at this model that we have mutations that lead to defective transcripts, potentially harboring a premature stop codon in yellow uh, in this diagram and leads to degradation. But we didn't really understand this link between degradation and increasing the production level of a paralogue. And this was the question that came up next. How is this happening? How do we go from degradation to this increase in production? And in the past decade, a number of studies have shown that RNA degradation and RNA synthesis are coupled processes, where they have shown that following degradation, the cell would want to equilibrate its production levels of a particular gene, and thereby signals back to increase the production of the gene that undergo decay. You can think of it as what you feel after training or after a workout. You feel hungry because your body depleted its sugar, and thereby it wants to replenish its sugar levels, and thereby you feel hungry to eat more. This is the same concept. So you have degradation of a particular gene, so your body knows that it needs to maintain specific production levels of that gene, so it signals back to increase the production of that gene. So we tried to think of this model, if it could explain what we observed, this transcriptional adaptation machinery. And we tried to think of a way similar to a guide RNA and a Cas9, where those RNA-DK intermediates can act as guides to specific proteins, let's say the DK factors or the DK enzymes themselves, and bring them back to specific loci of those paralogues and to help them increase the expression levels of those paralogues and how does this happen we thought of a way through what is known as homology mediated base pairing and this happens actually you can think of it as a magnet where different poles were attract and similar poles would repel so for example if we think about a gene that have a sequence of ctag it will only be able to bind to an rna molecule that have the complementary sequence gauc but if you have an RNA molecule that has a different sequence that is not complementary, it will not be able to bind. So we thought that if this is indeed what's happening, that there is an increase in expression of those paralogues because of homology-mediated base pairing, then one should not only expect only those one or two paralogs we're looking at to be increased in expression, but potentially other genes that exhibit sequence similarity or share sequence similarity with the mutant genes mRNA to be upregulated in a, non, in a more of like a nonspecific manner to this paralogue, but rather in a more gene uh, sem- sequence similarity specific manner. So to test this hypothesis, we wanted to ask, okay, how many genes that share sequence similarity are, are upregulated in the alleles or in the mutants that display RNA decay compared to alleles that that do not display RNA decay, and how many of the genes that do not exhibit sequence similarity are upregulated. So to test that, we took advantage of a method known as RNA sequencing. And RNA sequencing is an approach that allows us to test the transcript levels or the mRNA levels of all genes within the genome. And we did that and we bend the genes into two different bins. Either genes that exhibit sequence similarity with the mutant genes mRNA, or genes that do not exhibit sequence similarity with the mutant genes mRNA, and asked how, what's the relative upregulation levels between those two different bins. And interestingly, we're able to observe that um, in the, uh, there was indeed an enrichment of genes exhibiting sequence similarity to be upregulated. So in this graph over here, you're looking at, in red, the genes that do exhibit sequence similarity, and you can appreciate that at least 50 to 60 percent, of genes exhibiting sequence similarity are being upregulated in the mutant mouse cell lines that display decay compared to a maximum of 10 to 20 percent when uh, looking at genes that do not exhibit sequence similarity. And quite interestingly, most of those genes that exhibit sequence similarity, those red ones, were not upregulated in the RNA-less alleles or the mutants that do not transcribe the gene and thereby do not have a transcriptional adaptation response. So, This and other experiments made us build a model where we think what's happening is following a mutation that leads to a defective transcript, let's say having a premature stop codon, a nonsense mutation that leads to degradation, those decay intermediates can go back to the nucleus and promote the expression levels of paralogues and thereby lead to a transcription adaptation response. And if it increases the production levels of a closely functionally related gene, it can lead to a genetic compensation response, and thereby prevent any defect or phenotype uh, development within the animal. So this work has been published, where we show that the RNA surveillance machinery is not only important to prevent the production of truncated proteins that can be toxic to the cell, but it also helps in buffering against mutations to prevent the development of defects through loss of the gene function. We have also provided guidelines for for the scientific community on how to better design mutant animals to better understand gene function. So through generation of RNA-less alleles, as I've shown you, we were able to unmask hidden phenotypes and uncover them and thereby be able to better understand gene function, something that should be very helpful for the scientific community and it has helped our lab to better understand or unmask a lot of hidden phenotypes. So before I conclude my talk, I want to say a couple of words on implications of this machinery on human genetics. Now, it might be surprising to see Chewbacca when talking about human genetics. But the reason for this connection is the actor who portrayed Chewbacca, Peter Mayhew. Peter Mayhew was characterized by a specific genetic disease known as Marfan syndrome, which one of its famous characteristics is actually very long limbs, which is uh, what Chewbacca is famous for. And this Marfan syndrome is caused by mutations within a gene known as fibrillin 1. And such kind of disease or syndrome can range in the severity from having aortic aneurysm at a very early stage of your life and thereby dying to very mild forms of the disease. And an old study have actually tried to understand what makes a difference between having a very severe form of the disease and a mild form one. And they were able to see that mutations that lead to strong decay levels of the fibrillin-1 mutant mRNA actually are the ones that lead to the mildest form of the disease. And this went along with other studies that found that mutations that are less likely to cause RNA decay are more common in affected individuals than those that lead to RNA decay. The current understanding is that if you don't have decay, you might be under the risk of producing a truncated toxic protein that can lead to the development of the disease. But what we want to investigate in the future, or what we're aiming to look at right now, is whether when you have decay you have an induction of a transcription adaptation driven compensatory response by increasing the expression level, for example, of a paralogue and thereby contributing to your milder form of the disease or contributing to you being healthy as those genetic superheroes that we talked about at the beginning. So the bigger hope from this machinery is to try and find a way where we can convert everyone to a genetic superhero. And the question now is, could we imagine future therapeutic applications for transcription adaptation? Could we imagine ways where we can enhance the degradation of a particular mRNA and thereby funnel back into this transcription adaptation machinery to increase the production levels of particular paralogues of functionally related genes that can alleviate the symptoms? Or can we think of ways, for example, where we can enhance this translocation of those RNA-DK intermediates to the nucleus or other ways that can enhance the machinery in general that would require us first to better understand this machinery in a more detailed way, which is something that we're aiming to do in the coming uh, years. Thank you so much uh, for watching this video.